Hey, it's Manoush. Thanks so much for listening to this episode from our new season of Note to Self. We are so proud of these new episodes, which we're making with WNYC Studios and a new podcast network called Luminary. For more new episodes from this season, download the Luminary podcast app. It's free to download and has WNYC shows you already love, plus ad-free episodes of Radiolab and Dear Hank and John. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Note to Self. To get them all, just go to luminary.link slash note to self and start a free one-month trial of Luminary Premium. After that, the service is $7.99 per month, and you can cancel any time. Terms apply. Go to luminary.link slash note to self. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From Luminary Media, WNYC Studios, and Stable Genius Productions, this is Note to Self. Put down your phone! Unplug! Do a digital detox! We hear those phrases all the time. And we get it. We all want to do it. We're all trying. But look, it's not like those hours I spend looking at my little screen are all about checking Instagram or playing Candy Crush or shopping on Zappos. When my kid broke his finger at camp... How did I find out? A text. Why am I yakking away on my walk to the subway? Because I'm on a conference call with the team that makes this podcast, and we all work remotely. All those times I'm frowning and tapping in a corner at my local coffee shop, it's because I'm struggling to arrange appointments in my calendar like little Tetris blocks. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and this is Note to Self, the tech show about being human. And I wrote a book about how changing our digital habits can spark creativity and, paradoxically, make us more productive. And yet, I have come to the conclusion that I am only able to parent, run a business, and be a journalist because my phone acts as a clearinghouse for my brain. Do I hate how much I'm on my phone? Yes. But do I love my life and accept the responsibilities I have for the people in it? You bet. And so, until we get chips in our heads, this is how we busy people make it all work. Sigh. This is one of the core tensions we have out there right now, is constant accessibility has proven to be much more of a two-sided coin than we thought. That the advantages come with these disadvantages. And so we really have to step back now and say, okay, what can I reconfigure? But we have to keep scrambling with how do we just move beyond just a solution of, I just need to be constantly accessible because that's easiest. How do we mediate between that and I'm completely inaccessible and bad things happen? Cal Newport is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University. But you may have heard of him for another reason. He's got kind of a cult following thanks to the writing he does on his blog about work and regular people's relationship to their technology. I even quoted him in my book, Bored and Brilliant. Cal was on the show a few years ago, and now he's back to talk about his most recent book, Digital Minimalism. I'm going to be really honest here. I am on board with most of what Cal recommends. But other parts, I think, might just be for a very lucky subset of people who don't work multiple jobs or have caretaking duties or work remotely. 
but we can all take something away from his perspective on our digital habits. So please think of this episode as a refresher on a subject near and dear to my heart that I still struggle with. How to keep our devices, which are supposed to be tools, how do we keep them from becoming our taskmasters? So digital minimalism has taken the same philosophy that's been around forever. And saying we should do the same thing with our digital lives, right? It's not enough just to say, maybe I should have some better hacks. Like I'm going to turn off my notifications or I'm going to do a a digital Shabbat every week or I'm going to put my screen in the grayscale, which a lot of people seem for some reason to be doing these days. Working at it from the top isn't going to get it done. What you need to do instead is empty out the proverbial closet. Start from scratch. Say, let me get all the stuff off my phone. Let Let me take a step back from all of these services and apps that I brought into my life haphazardly and actually ask the question, which of these things is really important to me? Start from scratch, rebuild this life into something that's really intentional, where the tech is accelerating and boosting the things you're caring about and not getting in the way. And so minimalism is really like a fresh start where you rebuild your digital life so that's really working for you and it's no longer something that's getting in the way of the things you care about. And you suggest people do this over a 30-day period, right? The study that I did in 2015 called Bored and Brilliant really compressed this into a week. But you you pull it out a little longer. You say that 30 days is how long it takes for you to figure out what digital minimalism means to you. I recommend that people take a whole month break from these tech before they figure out what they actually want to put back into their life. And, and the reason I end up recommending that is for a lot of people – it actually takes some time to get back in touch with what you're really all about. I mean, to get back in touch with what you care about, what you want to spend your time doing. This actually requires self-reflection and it requires experimentation. And there's no real way to compress that into a few days. And so what I found when I was working with people to see what was the most effective way to take back control of the digital life is that I discovered that the problem is not just using less of the tech. I mean, if you tell someone... I want you to stop using Facebook tomorrow. Most people are okay with it. Like, okay, I stopped using it. It wasn't that big of a deal. That's not the issue. The issue is figuring out what to do instead of looking at Facebook. Instead, figuring out what it is that's more important to you than swiping Instagram or checking what the latest breaking news is on Twitter. It's that what I want to do instead, instead of the two to three hours I've been spending per day staring at my screen, that's really hard. And it takes people some time to figure it out. And so I expanded it out to 30 days. And that seems to be about the minimum required for a lot of people to really come away from this experiment feeling confident in this is what I want to do with my time. And so because of that, I can be much more bold in cutting back my tech to serve those purposes. I agree with you that like going cold turkey is usually, certainly for me, it's easier to say like, I don't eat sugar, you know what I mean? As opposed to like, I eat a little bit of sugar, right? But for some people, uh, Facebook, for example, they're like, ugh, my soccer team organizes everything on Facebook. I would love to be off Facebook, but it serves a very specific role in my life. So are you saying, like, mark that in your mind? Okay, so you go there to check when soccer practices, and that's it? Facebook groups, for example, being used to organize a community that you're involved with came up all the time with the various readers that I ran through this experiment. So when they're done with their 30-day period of sort of transitioning, they'll say, okay, well, I need Facebook groups in my life because my soccer team is really important, and that's how I literally figure out when the soccer practice is. But a key twist to this process is that when you bring the tech back into your life, when you're, in essence, filling back in the closet, you ask the question, how and when am I going to use it? 
which are the questions we often forgot to ask when we first downloaded these apps for more haphazard reasons. And so I have a lot of examples in the book, for example, uh, of people who use Facebook groups, but how do they use it? Well, it's only on their computer. It's not on their phone. And often they've used some sort of clever combination of plugins or bookmarks so that they can jump straight to the relevant Facebook group without seeing an algorithmically generated newsfeed that's trying to capture their attention. So they asked the question how and when, and by doing so, they're able to still extract this key piece of value they gain out of the technology without allowing it to be an excuse for them to idly browse for a couple hours a day. I think the idea of digital minimalism is lovely, but I think for some people, they feel like that the rules that they have with their technology are dictated by other people in their lives. And that could be a professor who wants them to be on certain platforms that they'd rather not have to log into all the time. That can be a boss who wants them to take on social media as part of their job. That can be as a parent who doesn't want to be tied to their phone all day long but is managing, you know, three kids' schedules and has no choice. What do we do about the things that we wish we could minimalize but cannot? Well, I mean, this is the magic of of minimalism is that it's not about good technologies and bad technologies. It's about intention and non-intention. And so let's say there's a particular use. Like there's a professor in my book. He's a music professor. And he talked about the way in which he has to use Facebook because it's part of the way they recruit faculty for his university. It's a responsibility of his. He has to be on Facebook to do some sort of recruiting. He can't leave it all together as part of his responsibilities. Maybe he wished he didn't have to, but that's part of his job. But by going through the minimalism process, he he gets to step back and say, okay, let me identify that. Here is something important I do need to do with tech. It's required for my job. Great. What's the best way to do it? Well, maybe I don't need it on my phone. I don't want it to be an excuse for idle browsing. Maybe I should have a schedule for when I do it. Maybe I should have some sort of system for I post, which is what he ended up doing. Once a week, he posts a certain thing and checks it. It takes him about 15 minutes a week. And what he has now is intention about specifically how he's using it, why he's using it, and what value he gets out of it. And that's really what we're missing. I think the mm-hmm. goal is not necessarily to get people to stop using all these technologies, you know, which would be a weird goal for a computer scientist to have. It's instead to try <laughs> to get some intention back into it. Well, which tech are you using? Why are you using it? What's that serving? And what are your rules around it to make sure that the cost-benefit ratio is in your advantage? I mean, simply asking those questions can make a huge difference in terms of the impact of your quality of your life. Can you tell me more about your life as a computer scientist and what your own work habits are? Well, so I'm a theoretical computer scientist, which means I'm sort of the non-useful type. (laughs) So (laughs) instead of actually programming things on computers that people use, I solve equations on chalkboards (laughs) and and, and do theorems and equations. So maybe I'm a little bit of an unusual case. But, you know, I've never, for example, had a social media account because for me – there's nothing that it gives a huge benefit for in my life. I'm sure there's lots of small benefits, but I'm a minimalist. I just want to use tech in a way where it's going to give me big wins. I obviously use tech a lot for collaboration. There's very specific tools I use for collaborating with far-flung computer science collaborators. That's a huge boon. But on the other hand, I'm not a big phone user. You know, I have a smartphone. I don't use it that often. I don't web browse that often. And so like any classic minimalist, there's certain tools I use and get huge benefit out of it. But beyond that tight circle, most of the other stuff that causes a background drum of noise, I tend to avoid. And what about for your family life? Like how do you and your family use technology? Uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, 
Text messaging is sometimes useful when I'm coordinating with my wife. My kids are all very young, so they don't have very much access to screens and technology. (laughs) It's not really that relevant to them. And in general, my family, my extended family has learned with some frustration to accept that I'm often hard to reach because I spend long periods of my day without my phone. And so the expectation that I will see a quick text message or, you know, I'll be able to pick up a quick call. That expectation is something that I am not always able to satisfy, which does cause some frustration, but not too much. And on the flip Mm -hmm. side, I feel like I'm able to have longer periods of uninterrupted presence. Yeah, I I had a moment a couple summers ago where I was at this really wonderful conference, and it was in Colorado, and it was beautiful. And I really, I had my bag next to me, and I was having this very intense conversation with someone, and I could feel my phone buzzing. And I was like, I'm not going to answer that because I'm having this great conversation. And of course, when I checked in later, it turns out that my son had fallen and was on his way to the emergency room. And I just felt awful. Like my mom was with him and they needed insurance information and all the stuff. And I feel like as someone who is working really hard to be purposeful about my relationship with my technology, there is an element of responsibility that I have as a small business owner, as a mother, to be connected because that's what makes it possible for me to be a professional mom that I'm available if something in an emergency. I'm available to do a quick pickup at school and then go back to work. Our entire team is remote, so but I need to be available. I think that to me is the biggest tension that I feel in actually living by the values that I too have written a book about. And I wonder if you feel any of that. Well, this is one of the main tensions in our culture right now is that we have acclimatized in some degree to a sense of constant accessibility. But we've also, as you've noticed, actually reworked the structures in which we work and live in such a way that more accessibility is actually fundamental. So when you're no longer in an office building but running a remote team, suddenly it does change the game with accessibility. And it's here that we have to throw a lot of intention at it and say, okay, what – What's important here? What's not? What's the best way to keep the benefits with getting rid of the potential cost? And the answers can get complicated. Sometimes there's not a good answer. And sometimes there are relatively subtle answers. Like I talked with a lot of fellow parents, for example, who set up their phones such that certain calls can come right through. In particular, calls from their spouse, their kid's school, or the babysitter who has the kids, or whatever it is. But the calls that are going to be, if they come through, they're going to be rare but urgent. They configure their phone so those come through. But I think it's important to point out that it is attention because there are real costs that comes with if we want to make ourselves constantly accessible. It does simplify a lot of things. We can now take this mode of interaction that we've evolved to be used to in small groups where we just have these unstructured ongoing conversations with people that's, that's really useful, but we're scaling it up to our business lives, to our lives with our extended social circles, and our brain's not really wired for that. Because our brain really has a hard time trying to differentiate between here's someone who urgently needs us and this is an email that's coming in from someone on my team that's not that urgent either. To our brain, it's just emergency. There's always people trying to reach us. There's always people that need us. We're never satisfying all the needs and it puts us into this state of anxiety. There might not be a slam dunk solution, but we have to keep scrambling with how do we just move beyond just a solution of I just need to be constantly accessible because that's easiest. 
how do we mediate between that and I'm completely inaccessible and bad things happen? And it's hard, but I think it's a hard process that more and more people are starting to think seriously about. Yeah. And I think actually, to me, it really speaks to the work of your other book, which is called Deep Work, which is this, you know, I'm a little bit of a productivity nut. And in that book, you talk about this idea that in the economy going forward, the people who can really work out the world's biggest problems, which takes a lot of deep work and hours of really thinking through problems, not skimming or doing quick troubleshooting, that that's what's actually going to be most needed and where the jobs will be. Can you talk about that some more? Well, the ability to focus without distraction in a knowledge-based economy is becoming one of the primary skills. So uninterrupted focus is what allows you to learn complicated things quickly. Uninterrupted focus is what allows you to produce cognitive output at very high rates of quality. This ongoing unstructured conversation through Slack and text messages and emails is not the same thing as producing value with your brain. And so we should be careful about just throwing up our hands and saying, hey, it's just easiest if everyone's just accessible all the time. Yeah, I could not agree with that more. And I spoke to um, Boston Consulting Group who did that prescriptive time off study. And I think they still use that where one day a week, one member of the team is just completely off and they're not allowed to be connected in any way. And part of this was retention that they were burning out their employees and they realized, like, how do we get people to feel engaged with their work? How do we get them to not be completely exhausted by working here? And how do we actually get them to do better work? And part of it was simply disconnecting for a day every week, which I think, you know, if we could all have bosses, including those of us who are self-employed, who would be okay with us being off completely for one day a week? Well, something that was interesting about that study, and so, so that work was done by Leslie Perlow at the Harvard Business School. And one of the other things she found when she studied the Boston Consulting Group is that they had had this culture of responsiveness, where the culture was if someone sends a message, you respond right away. And that became the expectation. Everyone assumed, like, well, this must be in place for a reason. It's because this is what we need to succeed as high-powered consultants. Responsiveness must be crucial. Everyone had these storylines. Perlow studied this and uncovered that actually no one ever decided that was a good idea. Why did this culture of responsiveness arise? It actually was a sort of human social dynamic feedback loop that had spiraled out of control. And so it had essentially emerged without any intention behind it. And I think that is an incredibly interesting result because what it tells us is there's probably a lot of these behaviors we see today in the workplace, especially around constant communication accessibility, that aren't so much there because it is crucial to doing our work well. But a lot of these habits are a lot more emergent and haphazard than we think. And so I think we're going to see more ideas like prescriptive time off that are going to enter the workplace where we start to get a little bit more serious about, wait a second, what's the best way to actually take a bunch of human brains and have those human brains produce valuable things Mm -hmm. in a way that's sustainable and doesn't burn them out? And I think once we do that type of thinking more seriously, We are not going to come up with the answer of, well, we should just hook everyone up to an inbox and rock and roll. I think we're going to see that 10 years from now as being an incredibly simplistic and naive way of trying to run a knowledge organization. So let's talk about when we're not working. That is a very key part of your book, that people need to find things to do with the time that perhaps they had spent scrolling, swiping, liking, favoriting, etc. Well, this was one of the big surprises when I was researching the book is that the impact of 
having all this distraction on our phone is not just the amount of time it takes away from other endeavors, because it takes up a lot of time. I mean, the average millennial is up somewhere between two to three hours a day looking at social media and related entertainment sources on their phone. I mean, that's a lot of time, but it's not just the time that it takes up. It actually seems to have, especially for younger people, a shift to the way they approach life that in an essence becomes an escape, an always available escape that prevents you from confronting hard things in your life, confronting your own thoughts, and doing the hard work of actually developing activities that's going to be the foundation of a more resilient and robust life. And so the biggest challenge people had when they began to really scale back to mindless distractions was figuring out, well, what am I supposed to do instead? High-quality leisure is something that's important. Activities that you do for no other reason than their intrinsic quality, like mastering how to cook or a particular craft or an instrument or a sport or whatever it is, but something that you just appreciate just for the sake of its intrinsic quality. We know all the way back from Aristotle that this is really crucial to having a sense of robustness to be able to get through the ups and downs in life and still see quality in the world. There's a deep philosophical tradition with it. And these are simple things that we used to take for granted serve your community, serve your friends, do activities that are outside of work that are just done for their own quality, but they're foundational for feeling happy, for feeling flourishing, for feeling like you're robust to the ups and downs of life. And we've been losing a lot of this by just letting the screen be this escape. Well, I don't have to deal with that now. I don't have to deal with that now. I can just hit this button and a really smart algorithm will show me something that will be perfectly distracting for me. So what's your jam, Cal? Like, what do you like to spend time doing? Well, I walk outside quite a bit. I'm seen as eccentric in my neighborhood, the weird professor who's walking in circles. (laughs) I read a lot. I've recently got back into my guitar playing. I have three young boys, so it's also just a lot of time, especially this time of year, just a lot of time outside. We invent games, we play, we explore, you know, we, we get hot and sweaty before bedtime. To me, this is foundational of a life I really enjoy. And you know, part of the reason why I don't use social media is not because I think I'm above it, but to paraphrase a George Packer essay is because I'm you know, afraid to let my kids go hungry. I don't know what would happen if I had access to such really good distraction. I'm very susceptible to that. And so by not having that so prominent in my life, I'm driven by our sort of fundamental human instinct to avoid boredom, I think, to do things that are maybe a little harder, but a little bit more valuable. And that's a big part of what a lot of the new digital minimalists who went through the process in my book ended up really investing most of their time in, is figuring out what do I really want to do instead? It's a hard question, but you have to have an answer. I wonder, though, were many of those people who responded to that question parents? Because I know that since I've had children, I don't have hobbies anymore, the idea of like having a little bit more leisure time, I would like to lie down. Yeah. <laughs> I find also that, and I don't know, maybe I don't, I don't want to pry, but like with my husband, there's always a like, you know, well, if you take the kids, then I can go do this. We're, we're sort of keeping tabs. Like, well, you got to go for a bike ride yesterday. So I should get to like go lie down and read the paper for an hour. There's just not enough hours in the day often. Well, I think, like a lot of parents, my leisure has to be increasingly built around things I'm doing with the kids, especially because we have a baby at home. So oh, I'm, that's hard, yeah. I'm on the older two kids patrol, which, but also, which I love. So I've reworked a lot of my leisure to be, well, what are things that we can all do together? And I think a lot of this generation of, of initial adopters is looking around and saying, look, I have kids now. Like, this is more important. Why am I looking at – I don't know how many times I heard from parents them saying that their wake-up call was, why am I looking at my phone 
when I'm sitting here with my kid, it's bath time. I know for a fact that I would rather be paying attention to my kid, and yet I'm still looking at the phone. That, that's a wake-up call for a lot of people that there's something going on here that's out of whack. One dad talked about how weird it was after he went through this transition to be the only parent at the playground not looking down. <laughs> it was almost uncomfortable. It's like everyone's just looking down mm-hmm. at their phone. He was the only person there who wasn't. He was actually just there with his kids, seeing what they were up to. They were giving him updates, and he was encouraging them. And that it, for a while, it felt almost surreal. But here's what frustrates me is I don't necessarily know that the answer is in each of us changing our personal daily habits. I mean, I think that there needs to be more of a push, whether it be design standards, regulation, I don't know if it's a Hippocratic oath for computer scientists, but some sort of systemic and societal decision to change things on a much broader level rather than just one guy at the playground. Well, it's an interesting question, and I just don't know where I fall on this. I'm not against, on principle, the idea that there is some sort of systemic fix that we should consider. But I'm yet to see one that I think is going to be all that effective. And my concern is, you know, I'm wondering if the right analogy here is not social media is like big oil, right? So we have Chris Hughes writing in the New York Times recently that we need to break up Facebook in the same way that we broke up Standard Oil because you can't monopolize a public good. It becomes anti-competitive and bad for consumers. But what if the better analogy, and I'm just thinking out loud here, I'm not saying I necessarily believe this, but what if the better analogy was big tobacco, you know, what did we do with big tobacco? We didn't come in and say, we got to try to fix these cigarette companies so their cigarettes aren't so bad for us. We have to somehow try to regulate the cigarettes in such a way that they'll be less addictive. Instead, we tried to change the culture so that people stop normalizing the idea that you smoke a couple packs a day. Like, that's probably not good for you. I'm not against on principle that idea that there could be some regulation that's important here, that there could be some systemic fixes. I'm yet to hear one yet, though, that I really think, yeah, that's going to do it. So for now, I'm focusing a lot on the culture because I feel like this is a place where we can actually have some traction right now. Yeah, I see your point there. And as we figure out what the broader potential fixes are, whether they be antitrust measures or design standards or whatever, maybe it's all of those things. I think it's a really hard nut to crack and it requires a lot more debate and conversation and more knowledgeable lawmakers. But meanwhile, yeah, we each have to sort of be better at observing our own behaviors and asking ourselves if our technology is serving us or not. I think that's crucial. I'm wondering, I have a kind of author to author question for you. When I was about to come out with my book, the publisher said, well, can you amp up your social media? Because obviously that's a way that you reach readers, right? I'm assuming that your editor or publisher didn't bother saying that to you. But then tell me more about, because you're a bit of an anomaly here, Cal, in that you have a following and yet you are not terribly accessible or visible. How did you do it? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I I wrote a book in 2012, and the publisher brought into one of our first meetings the social media expert (laughs) that that helped me figure out how to maximize my social media channels. And I think after that, they kind of learned like, oh, yeah, Cal's the guy without social media. I think we probably exaggerate the role of social media in whether or not a book sells a lot of copies or not. But what we ignore is the negative impact. I'm probably giving up some sales, but I'm also probably writing books at a faster rate than if I had Twitter. So it probably all works out in the end. (laughs) I do want to ask you, which is a little bit of an uncomfortable question for me. I just flipped your book over, and it's a beautiful cover, by the way. And I, I looked at the blurbs on the back, 
And they're one, two, three, four, five, six blurbs. And they're all lovely. But they're all advisements to read the book from white men who I think have time to think about these things more deeply. How do we begin to make the message of digital minimalism? And I think of it as almost consumer empowerment. How do we make that more accessible and inclusive to people who maybe aren't in the knowledge economy, are just trying to keep up every day and don't necessarily even have a moment to think about their relationship with their technology? Well, no, it's an interesting question. And, and the feedback I've been getting when I'm on the road is that, that probably the right distinction is probably more of a class distinction than a gender distinction. That this is where the really the interesting conversation I've been having on the road is, as you're pointing out, well, I mean, what if you're in a situation in life in which, as you're saying, you have very little excess sort of emotional or physical energy to invest in self-development in general? You're working two jobs, you're in a hard circumstance, there's problems happening in your family or community. And I agree that this is like a really big issue. Because what you're going to get potentially is some sort of stratification where where those who have the extra time and income to have some space and to reflect and to do 30-day digital declutters and all of this are going to reform their advantage with technology, which in exchange is going to improve their lives. And then you know those who don't have the luxury of having that time, it's, things are just going to get worse. It's going to get more exploitative. I don't have an answer for that. And it's something we have to keep in mind when we're thinking about the impact of these massive attention conglomerates in general. I mean, how are the negative impacts really going to shake out? I mean, we saw this with the rise of highly hyper-palatable processed food. It made us, in general, quite unhealthy, but this did not shake out in a completely equal way. I mean, those who were higher up on the economic scale ate better food, don't eat as much junk food, weren't hit as much by the, the health impacts of the introduction of all this type of processed food. It was unequally distributed. We might see the same sort of cognitive contentment issues happening here with digital minimalism. So I think it's a point well taken, and we have to think about it, because we could be creating here another stratification. Cal Newport, thank you so, so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Cal Newport, folks. The book is called Digital Minimalism. And some of what he has said has been covered on this show, but I think his perspective, particularly as a computer scientist, is worthwhile. And also his technique, 30 days off, is rather extreme. But hey, as a society, we are still working out what appropriate behavior with our tech is at home and at work. So we got to start with ourselves and our habits as individuals, right? Have you become a digital minimalist? I would love to know. Please email me about your experience, what worked, what didn't, at note to self at stableg.com. That's note to self at stableg.com. And if you'd like links to stuff we talk about on all these episodes, plus more about how to live better with your technology, you should subscribe to the newsletter I write here at Stable Genius Productions that goes out every other Thursday. We don't want to overload you. You can sign up at StableG.com. And for more about ethics and the people building companies and the products that we use every day, do check out our other podcast that we make here. It's called ZigZag, and it's about the changing culture of business and work. So after you listen to Note to Self, come find us at ZigZag. Note to Self comes to you from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with WNYC Studios and Luminary Media. 
The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Marcy Thompson, Matt Boynton, David Herman, Anya Zhezik, and Maria Wartell. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and thank you so much for listening. Just go get it off your phone, right? Okay. Thanks. Bye. Cal, um, if you could just put your foot to your forehead now, because I, I worry that you're sitting there like completely contorted. Are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. It's Manoush again. For all new episodes of Note to Self, we hope you'll go to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary podcast app.